Has there ever been a time in which we've been less certain than we are today? Some of you over the course of the last three weeks have had your entire lives changed. All of us have in one way or another had our lives interrupted. And the open-endedness of all of this is very likely the hardest part. Some of you went to a business meeting on one week for them to tell you how secure your job was only to be laid off the very next week once they saw how dire the situation actually was. Some of you have been overrun, flooded with work in your business for as long as you can remember only now to realize there is no work left for you to do. You've watched as your retirement has eroded. You've watched as your health insurance has been canceled. Some of you have health conditions that have had you quarantined for weeks and you have no idea even the the end of that quarantine and the results of you being infected could very likely be catastrophic, if not lethal. And so surrounding us, surrounding us is uncertainty. Surrounding us is an inability to fully reconcile all that we see and all that we feel with all that we know. But what I want us to see this morning is that uncertainty provides the testing grounds of faith. That in times of uncertainty, that God is at work in the midst of that uncertainty to test our faith, to build our faith, to advance our faith, and to bring joy into our faith. That when we begin to experience plot twists like this pandemic in the midst of our very own lives, that we can be certain that in the midst of that plot twist, that God is in fact advancing his story. And that's what we're going to see this morning through Abraham. Having left off where Andrew did last week, we can, seems like we ought to be able to write the end of Abraham's story. But what we're going to find this morning is that Abraham, in a time of uncertainty, in an ultimate plot twist in his life, and what we're going to see is that God, through the plot twist in Abraham's life, actually advances his own story, advances his plan to redeem and to restore the world. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me? To Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. One of the most spectacular stories in all of the Bible. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to begin reading together in verse 1. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. At this point in the story, we've already begun to see some patterns that are developing. We've seen patterns of sin, consequences, and grace. We've seen patterns of how we rebel and how God pursues us and how God redeems us. We've seen how we corrupt the earth and how God renews the earth. We've seen how curses in the story are typically followed by blessings and grace in the story. And this morning we see yet the establishment of another pattern. That we see this morning the establishment of the pattern of how God tests his people. How God tests his saints. And what we see is that the Lord is at work in the midst of these established patterns. And he's going to work one generation after the next generation after the next generation through these patterns to reveal himself, to advance his glory, to build his kingdom, and to spread his name to the very ends of the earth. So this morning what I want us to take time to see is the shape of a tested faith. The shape of a tested faith. My thesis this morning is that none of us want to be tested. None of us want to be tested. None of us want to experience the testing that God can allow into our lives. None of us want to experience the bruising and the hardship and the, and the pain of that testing. But that at the end, having been tested, we are glad we have been. That none of us want to be tested, but once we have been tested, and once we have seen the faithfulness of God, and once we have seen God sustain us and deliver us, that we look back on that testing and we see that God used that testing in our lives to advance our own joy with his glory. And so the thesis this morning is that we don't want to be tested, but we're glad that we're tested. We can probably see this very similarly in Abraham's life. Now, you can imagine how the story has been unfolding up until this point. Abraham is a pagan. Abraham is an unbeliever living in a pagan land when God comes and reveals himself to him. And when God reveals himself to him, it says that, fa- that Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. That his belief in God and that his devotion to God, that, that his belief that God is worth all of his life for the rest of his life sets him apart. And God says, you are not holy, you are not righteous, you are not 
you are not justified in my sight, but, but seeing your faith, I will make you righteous. I will justify you. I will set you apart. And so we would think, we would think that from that point forward, that Abraham would live his life on the straight and narrow. We would think that with Abraham having received such an incredible gift from God as righteousness, having God intervene in his life so miraculously, that from that day forward, that Abraham would live on the straight and narrow. But we would think that the same thing about ourselves, wouldn't we? We would think the same thing about ourselves. That having received Christ, having been delivered by Christ, having been redeemed by Christ, having been given a righteousness that is not ours, that is foreign to us, but accomplished by Christ, you would think, having been a recipient of such grace as that, that we would live in unwavering faith and dedication unto the Lord. But we know that's not the truth, don't we? No. No, what we see in Abraham's life is a pattern of ups and downs, of hot and cold, the very same patterns that we see in our lives. That he goes and he tries to lie his way out of Egypt. He tries to deceive Abimelech to be delivered by his own ingenuity again. We come into chapter 15 and God makes this miraculous, remarkable covenant with God, a a covenant of grace, one-sided from God to him. And God obligates himself at his own initiation to Abraham for the rest of Abraham's existence and far beyond that Abraham will have offspring that will be more numerous than all of the stars of the sky or the sand of the beach. And immediately, immediately what we see is Abraham begin to doubt the promise. In fact, as time passes, he and Sarah believe that they're going to have to conspire to accomplish God's promise by their own terms. And so he takes a second wife, Sarah's servant, Hagar, and he has a son, an illegitimate son, outside of the promise of God, outside of the provision of of God, by the name of Ishmael. Looks just like us. It's exactly what we do. We have the promises of God and we believe that we must intervene on God's behalf and take those promises into our own hand. So God comes to Abraham and he questions and he begins to explain to him, no, in fact, I am going to give a son through Sarah. I am going to give the son that I have promised. I am going to give you the offspring that I have said and it is going to be my way. It is going to be miraculous at my hand. Now you would think, You would think Abraham and Sarah, having received this intervention yet again from the Lord, would respond in faith. But do you know how they respond? They laugh. They laugh. They laugh in the face of God. Me, me as old as I am, as barren as I am, beyond childbearing years, not even reproductively possible. Ha! And they laugh and laugh until Isaac is born. Until Isaac is born. In fact, Isaac's name is the, means the son of laughter. The son of laughter. That now in their 90s, in their 90s, they have received the assurance and fulfillment of the promise of God. They have seen God's faithfulness be born into their house. And yet again, yet again, we think we've got the story figured out at this point. This is where the story goes to the end, rushes to the end, and says, and they lived happily ever after, right? This is the part of the story in which we get to go to the end and and see the wedding at the end of the the princess movie until the, the rug is jerked out from under their feet. 
So Abraham is a lot like us. He comes into Genesis chapter 22 with a pattern of unfaithfulness and occasional faithfulness. He comes into chapter 22, in fact, limping and bruised by a long life, lived according to the providence of God, only to find himself facing a test that now encompasses in every way all of the tests that have, he has faced before. And so we see, we see in Genesis 22 explicitly stated that God tests his servants. Isaiah the prophet says, some, says something that is repeated by Jesus in the Gospels. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed he will not break. That our Savior is so gentle, our God is so gracious, that those of us that have been bruised by the brokenness of this world, a bruising that we can see so clearly portrayed in a time of pandemic, that God will deal with us in a way that will not break us. But when it comes to the servants of God, bruised they will be. Bruised they will be. That we will walk with bruised and tender spirits. Many of you can relate exactly to what I say. That as I use the word bruised, you can think of how you feel and the woundedness that you have experienced and the sorrow that's in your very own heart right now. And you could say, yes, yes, I feel bruised. I have been bruised according to the providence of God. And so the question would come, why does God allow why does God allow? Why does God permit the bruising of his people? Why, why does God permit the bruising of his church? Why does God permit the bruising of those who love him, of those who have committed to him, of those who are living out his promises, of those that he has, he has covenanted with us by grace to deliver and to redeem and to establish and to justify? That's what we see in, in Abraham. And that's the same question that we have for ourselves. Why? The whys of tests are the hard, some of the hardest questions that we'll experience in our faith, aren't they? The whys of tests are some of the hardest situations that we'll face. And I think that that, in fact, is much of what is being addressed and being demonstrated through this life of, of Abraham as he's commanded to go and to sacrifice Isaac. But why don't you see that tests reveal priorities? Tests reveal priorities. They help us to identify and eliminate idols in our lives. They help wipe from our calendars and from our thoughts those competitors in our lives with God for our affection, for our devotion, for our passion. They help reveal and melt away and cut the fat from our lives so that we are left to find out what we actually love, what we actually live for, what we actually crave, what we actually desire more than any other desire, what the supreme center of our lives are really built on. And you can see that in Abraham's life by the way that God issues the test. Do you see the language that God comes and approaches Abraham with? He says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, well, here I am, here I am. Talk to me, Lord. You have to assume that in some way Abraham is expecting an encouragement, right? Abraham is expecting an encouragement. And he comes, and God says to him what? He, he says, take your son. But he doesn't stop there. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. But he doesn't stop there. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Take the son of promise that I have given to you. 
Take the assurance that you have of my love for you. Take the fulfillment of my word to you. Take the fulfillment of my promises to you. Take the, take the reminder of my goodness and my grace and my love in your, love, in your life. Isaac, your son of laughter, take him and slit his throat. And with every increasing description that he gives, your son, your only son, whom you love, it is adding to the agonizing call of disobedience. It's adding to the pain of this providence, this bruising providence in the life of Abraham. 25 years. 25 years. That's how long it was between God's promise and, God, and, and Isaac's birth. 25 years. For 25 years, Abraham and Isaac dreamed of the uh, Abraham and Sarah dreamed of the day that Isaac would be born. For 25 years, they thought of the name. For 25 years, they, they planned the nursery in the back corner of the tent. For, for 25 years, they, they waited on God to fulfill his promise, and not, not due to any faithfulness on their part, not due to any, any, incredible, uh, any incredible demonstration of obedience on their end. For 25 years they waited, and often they got in the way, and then, then the son is born, and here he is, having been loved by them, having been instructed by them, having been discipled by them, nearing adolescence, and their love for him only increasing as they prepare to step out and die. And what does God ask them to do? To kill him. To kill him. To let his blood be spilled upon an altar. And having his blood spilled, to have his flesh burned right there on the spot. Isaac is Abraham's assurance of God's faithfulness. And God says to haul him up to the mountain and plunge a knife through his heart. This is a test for idols. This is a test for idols. It is a test to see what it is that Abraham loves most. Is it God or Isaac? Is it the giver or the gifts? Is it the creator or the creation? Is it the one who has made the covenant or the assurances he has given of that covenant? Who does, God love, who does Abraham love most? And as this extra fat is cut away from us by the course of this pandemic, it's the same question that all of us are facing. What do we love most? Our financial security? Our health insurance, the achievement of our ambitions, the, the raising of the standard of living for our families, our health, our well-being, our, our security, our safety, or God, or God, or the glory of God, the name of God, the kingdom of God, the advancement of God. Where is our hope found? Is our hope found in a paycheck that comes on time every other week? Or is our comfort and our hope and our security found in a God that has assured us, his people, that not a bird falls from the sky without his knowledge? Yes, as this pandemic erases the certainty from our lives, it is most certainly a test for idols. Who will we trust? Who do we love? Not only to test we begin to reveal to us what our priorities are, but tests appear contradictory. Tests appear contradictory. You know, Abraham must have wondered if it was opposite day in the kingdom of God. 
You ever, when you were a kid, you probably played opposite day, you know, just to drive your parents crazy. They'd ask you a question. You'd say no when you meant yes. That must have been how it felt to Abraham as God came to him. Because nothing that God said made sense. Can you relate to that? That, that God is speaking to his son and nothing that God is saying to his son makes a lick of sense to him. It, God, it seems contradictory to the law of God. We, we have seen since Cain and Abel that God stands against the murder of one human of another. We have seen in the law of God that God stands, stands staunchly against, especially against the backdrop of antiquity and all of the other ancient religions, that God stands staunchly against human sacrifice. And here he was asking Abraham to slaughter his very own son, an innocent boy. Not only does this contradictory to the law of God, it's contradictory to the character of God. All, Isaac, all Abraham knew God to be was a giver. He had given to him his righteousness. He had given to him his wealth. He had given to him Canaan. He had given to him protection. He had given and given and given. And now, now he was taken. Now he was taken. He seemed totally out of character for everything that Abraham knew God to be. And it seemed contradictory to the promises of God. God had promised to Abraham that through his son, through the son that Sarah would bear, the son that he would provide, that he would make his children more numerous than the stars of the sky, that every nation on earth would be blessed through his son. And that can't happen if his son is killed. So it seems to contradict in every single way. And y'all, that's how God's tests usually look. God's tests often appear in contradiction to God's promises. God's tests often appear in contradiction to God's promises. That's what I want you to remember as you walk through Publix and everybody's wearing a mask. It doesn't look like the promise of God unfolding. But God's tests are often in contradiction to God's promises. As you watch your uh, 401k begin to deplete, I want you to remember that God's promises are often appear to be in contradiction when God is testing. Now, God is working through that very apparent contradiction to fulfill his promises. There are many promises that we feel like we can see clearly, and seeing them clearly, we feel like we know how the story ought to go. We see Genesis 12, we see Genesis 15, we see the birth of Isaac, and we think, we think, having the promise of God, seeing the promise fulfilled, this is how the story ought to go. And that's the same thing that we do. We can see the promises of God, we believe, with such clarity that God has said that if we abide in him and abide in him fully, that our joy, our joy will be resilient and durable and everlasting. It says that we can have a peace that is beyond all understanding. That if we come to Christ, that we can experience an abundant life. It says that, that all things are working together for the good of those who love God. And I don't know about you, but there are times in which I look at my life and I wonder, with this much pain and this much bruising and this much agony, how can it be good? How can it be good? How does this not contradict the abundant life that I've been promised? How does this not contradict the joy that Jesus has promised can be full in me? But you see, the path of God's providence seems to be moving you away from his promises on his way to fulfilling his promises. 
That we want a path as straightforward as God's promises appear to us, but his is a twisting, hairpin-turned providence that calls us day in and day out, year in and year out, to renew our trust, to renew our confidence in him. So this morning, in a time of uncertainty, will you trust in the providence of God? Will you put your hope in the twisting, bruising providence of God that though it looks to be in contradiction, it is actually on its path to fulfillment? You see, ultimately, ultimately, God's tests clarify belief. Ultimately, God's tests clarify belief. That tests clarify whether you have a living, saving faith or a dead and condemning faith. God is too gracious. God is too gracious to allow you to step into eternity with an untested faith. God is too good to allow you to continue on with a a confession that is yet unproven. A confession that has not been tested against the backdrop of reality. For how can you know the sweetness of God until you have tasted the bitterness of earth? How can you know the grace of God until you have tried to go out on a limb by yourself and self-rescue only to find yourself on the edge of death? How can you know whether or not you will persevere in believing in the goodness of God and the promises of God when everything around you seems to be falling apart when you don't even know how tomorrow will go? See, this is what James tells us. James uses Abraham as an example. James uses the story of Abraham offering Isaac as an illustration of what it means to have a faith that is alive. James says that faith without works is dead. And so he begins to anticipate questions that you would have. That you might say, but I thought, but I thought that our salvation is by grace and not by works. How is it that my faith is tied to my works if my, I cannot be saved by my works? And what James points to Abraham to show is that obedience, the works of obedience, the outgoing of obedience in your life is the evidence of a saving faith. It is the evidence of a living faith. That a faith that never actually takes a step toward God doesn't trust God. That a faith that doesn't rest on God when God calls them to an excruciating obedience isn't a confidence in God at all. The sincerity of our faith is dependent of, is, is the determining factor as to whether our faith will be credited to, to us as righteousness. And these tests offer clarity and assurance. So James says that when he looks at Abraham, that what we see is his son is laid bound upon the altar, that his faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works. That what we are watching as Abraham marches up the mountain of Moriah and binds his son and lays him down and lifts up the knife is what we are seeing is not works that lead to salvation, but the faith that God has already credited as righteousness. That as he raises the knife, he is not raising it in an attempt to save himself by his own strength. He is raising it because all of his hope and all of his, all of his good and all of his provision and all of his protection and all of his deliverance is in the hands of God himself. And so he raises it because God says raise it and his confidence, his trust is in God. His faith is active. It is alive. It is vibrant. And so it saves him. What about the faith in your life? You see, living faith trusts what it knows. 
Living faith trusts what it knows. For three days, Abraham and Isaac hike into the mountains. They don't even know the destination. Notice that? God says, go toward Moriah, and you're going to go to a place, and I'm going to show you where it is. And so they wake up in the morning, and they begin to walk, and they don't even really know where the final destination is going to be. And you can imagine that as Abraham begins to walk toward Moriah and his son there with him, he can hear his son as he crunches the leaves and breaks the limbs with his steps. And as he thinks, you can imagine as often as as he thinks of his son, the pit that's in his stomach, the way his heart would race, how he would remember what it was like when he taught Isaac to ride a bicycle. How you would remember what it was like when Isaac took his first stumbling, bumbling steps. What it was like when when Isaac said, Dad, for the very first time. What it was like when, when he saw the son of promise for the first time and held him up and says, Lord, this is your son before he is my son. He is yours, not mine. And how the day of reckoning. The day of reckoning for that dedication had come to reality. Was this actually God's son? And so you can imagine, every step is an agonizing step. Every step is a bruising step. And he goes and they arrive to Mount Moriah. And I want you to hear these words of faith from Abraham. A man that has been up and down and hot and cold. He comes to the day of test and he arrives there with his young men and his son. And he says, young men, you stay here. The boy and I, the boy and I are going over there to worship together. And the boy and I are coming home. Don't miss that. He, go, he tells his servants that I'm going over there. He's got the altar, the wood for the altar stacked on Isaac's back. He's got the knife and the flint in his hand. And he begins to walk over there and he says, but we're coming back. Isaac is coming home with me. He has no idea how. No conception of how God is going to deliver him. Only the assurance in his mind that though the promises of God appear to be in contradiction, that God's character is not flawed, that God's promises are committed, that he has seen the fulfillment of this word before, and he will see the fulfillment of this word yet yet again. So you can imagine as he begins to walk, and his son looks to him. He says, hey dad, here I am, my boy, here I am. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Dad, I see the wood for the altar. We've done this before. We've done this a thousand times, Dad. We've worshipped together, Dad. Now, I've got the wood, and you've got the knife, and you've got the flint, but we're missing the lamb. Where is the lamb? How do we know? And this is how we sustain in tests. This is how we find out whether we will trust what we feel, whether we will trust what we see, or we will trust what we know. Abraham responds to his son based upon what he knows. What does he say? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb. My boy, God will provide because God always provides. I have seen God provide over my hundred years, and I know that this day will yet be no different. 
It's not what I feel, it's not what I see, but it is what I know. That he provided my righteousness, he provided my promise, he delivered, he, he provided the deliverance of light, he provided my safety in Egypt, he provided you my son, and today he will provide the salvation of my son. So they're both, they're there, and they're worshiping in submission. Abraham preparing to offer his son, and his son, younger, more vibrant, stronger, than his father is laid there allowing himself to be bound allowing the knife to cut him so there he is he's bound up and laid upon the altar every nerve blown out sweat dripping from his brow sorrow overcoming his heart and with a shaky hand he lifts the knife into the air preparing to plunge it into his beloved son's heart when there is a ram suddenly in view stuck in the brush god has provided god has provided. Living faith trusts God's promises over life's appearances. God may call us to a painful providence. God may call us to a life that is more sorrowful than joyful. God may call us to a, an obedience that we don't even want to be a part of. For some of you, God may call you to a city or to a country that you don't even want to live in. God may call you away from your support system of your family. God may call you away from a comfortable living and a, and a smooth salary. God may call you to lower your standard of living, that you might be a part of raising the standard of living for others. God may call you to take your children to live in places that are less than safe. God may call you to, to obey him and to share his, his glory at work in a way that lowers your ability to be promoted, that lowers your ability to be accepted by everyone else. God may call you to an obedience in your high school that causes you to be, to be mocked and that causes you to be the outcast of everyone else leading, uh, looking in. But the, what God come, calls you to, the question is, is, will you trust what God has promised or will you trust what you have seen? Will you trust in, in life's appearances or will you trust in God's promises? Because in the bruising, twisting providence of God, life is never what it seems. That God works through circumstances that we can't see and we can't understand to provide an answer that advances and increases our joy and our confidence and our worship in him. That God working all of these things through pandemics and job loss and through hard calls toward obedience, God is working through all of it to move us toward glory. That's what living faith knows. That's what living faith discovers. That's what living faith experiences. See, living faith obeys unconditionally. Living faith obeys unconditionally. A faith that saves, a faith that delivers, is a faith that is faithful to obey. Three different times you hear the response from, from Abraham of here I am, right? And it's reminiscent of that famous call of Isaiah, isn't it? That God reveals himself and, and peels back the floor of heaven and begins to reveal himself to the prophet Isaiah. And what does Isaiah say? Here I am. Here I am. Send me, Lord. Here I am. Send me. These are, this is a response of obedience. But look at what he responds to that to. First, it comes with a hard call. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. 
And God says, go and sacrifice your beloved son. Then it's with a hard question. Isaac calls out to his dad, father, father. And Abraham responds, son, my son, here I am. Here I am. Where's the lamb, dad? But that third, that third time that he responds with, here I am, do you know what it's to? A miraculous provision. A miraculous provision. He raises up the knife, preparing to kill his son at the command of God when the angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham, and he says, here I am. And he says, we have seen your faith. Put down the knife. Look over the horizon, and there, there is the miraculous intervention and provision of God. You see, you don't get that response if you don't answer that call. You don't experience the miraculous intervening provision of God if you don't first, if you don't first respond to the hard call of God and be willing to answer the hard questions of God. Then, then, then you will experience the great refreshment of the Lord. See, you don't enjoy the drink of water until you've come through the desert. God was who Abraham believed he was. And we know that Abraham believed he was because of Abraham's obedience. And you'll know. You'll know who you actually believe in. You'll know who you actually trust. You'll know if you want to be in control or whether or not you put your confidence in God's control by your obedience. But as the voice of God interrupted Abraham's painful obedience and provided a substitute for the boy, do you think... Do you think for one second that Abraham was filled with anger or bitterness? Or do you think that Abraham was filled with gladness and joy and worship? See, this brings us full circle to the, to the thesis, right? What an excruciating call on Abraham's life. What a horrible question to have to answer. What a horrible hike to have to make up into the mountains. Every step in agony. Every step unsure. Every step unclear. Until you get there. Until you get there. And you know, you know that God is going to provide. And then he does. Then he does. And seeing the provision of God, you think, oh. God, you are better than I even imagined. You are better than I even believed. On this day, you did not put to shame my hope. And so Abraham, he says, this mountain, this mountain is going to be a memorial for all peoples and all generations. As they come by this mountain, they will remember that that is the mountain on which the Lord provided for me. And so he says, we will name this, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh becomes a name of God that we still use today. Jehovah Jireh. On that mountain, God has provided. On that mountain, we remember that what God calls us to, God will see us through. On that mountain, we remember that God, the one who brings us through a bruising, painful providence, will only serve to increase our gladness in him. That the path of suffering led to a place of celebration. In Iron City, it's going to be the same for us. 
That if we will answer the excruciating, bruising call of our Lord, that the painful path of his providence is going to secure for us a place of celebration, a place in which we see the joy of all peoples increase, that God provides our gladness, that he tests his servants, God's tests clarify beliefs, and through that clarity, God provides our gladness, that the twisting, painful road of providence always leads to greater gladness in God's promises. In fact, there was a greater promise being foreshadowed here the whole time. A greater promise being foreshadowed here for the the whole time. In which God will not only promise us gladness, but will accomplish our gladness and secure our gladness forever. That there will be a greater path of suffering that will lead to a greater place of celebration. Just like that day on top of Moriah, God has to provide a sacrifice for himself so that we are not justly killed for our treason against him. And as God provided the ram as a substitute for Isaac, he would provide a substitute for every one of us by offering up his son, his only son, whom he loved, to be sacrificed without his intervention. Just as Isaac carried the wood of the altar on his back, so Jesus would march with his wooden cross up to the mountain of Golgotha. That Jesus would cry out in an echo of Isaac questioning his dad, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But rather than relenting, God would pour out his full wrath owed to every sinner for his son was the sacrifice he would provide to satisfy his own wrath that the world might be redeemed. He would not withhold his very own son, but his son would return and through him all the nations of the earth have been, are being, and will be blessed. This has been God's plan from the beginning, and it's being revealed one plot twist after another. It is a painful, bruising providence moving toward a greater gladness. And church, the call, the invitation for every one of us is to come into Christ, into the Son that has been sacrificed, and to put down our own strength, and to put down our self-reliance, and to put down our self-rescue, and to put down our aimless pursuits of happiness in this fleeting world, and to anchor all of our hope on the provision of God in the Son that was slain. Your gladness has been accomplished. Your gladness has been secured. Come to Christ and see. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.